It's amazing what we can find in brief periods of silence as we listen for the whispers of eternity. This is Logosish. All over the globe, religious traditions have developed practices for listening for the divine at work. And today we discuss one of those practices, known as group spiritual direction, with our guest, Reverend Dr. Melanie Dobson. Hey guys, welcome back to Logos-ish. This is John. We are having a really, really great and not at all busy week this week. I am joined by Sarah and Garrett and Brian, so no guessing game today to figure out when our errant host is coming in. We are all here starting from the very beginning. How are you guys doing? Great. We're recording this during Holy Week. I think it'll come out a couple weeks later, but uh, it is Good Friday. And um, we have coffee, so. <laughs> so it is a good Friday. You know, it's Holy Week. It's been a busy week. Plus or minus 80 hours of work this week. So uh, thank God it's Friday and all most of that work is already done. That's amazing. Yeah, um, it's been interesting in the midst of unpacking and getting settled in during Holy Week. I've been able to practice being a layperson and just and, and watch things and be in prayer. So this is very new for me. Yeah, so you're basically on vacation this week, right, Garrett, as you move and get ready to transition into your new thing? Uh, vacation is a strong word, John. There's a lot of lifting boxes in this vacation. I did sign up for that. But it's it's a blessing to, to be in the new place and sort of explore the area before I jump into work. And when is your start date, Garrett? The 8th of this month, so in six days. And your social security number and your bank pin? Whatever yours are. Whoa. Oh, oh how convenient. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, let's jump into it today. Our guest is Assistant Professor Leffler and Woltman Chair in Methodist Studies and the Director of Spiritual Direction uh, of the Spiritual Direction Certification Program at Lutheran Theological Southern Seminary of Lenore Rhine. I feel like I should win a prize for the number of syllables I just said in a row. Uh, Dr. Dobson, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, thank you. It is good to be with you on this Good Friday and glad to be a part of your podcast. So thanks for having me. We're excited to have you here. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself? What's your story? Yes. So I was born and raised in the United Methodist Church. I grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina, and went to a small kind of family size uh, United Methodist Church where the organist, we always said, needed a seatbelt because she rocked and rolled on the organ. It's where I learned how to sing. It's where I learned about Jesus. It formed and shaped me in the faith in a community where everyone knew each other's name. So I was also shaped deeply by, of course, my family, as most of us are, um, and my mom really impacted me theologically. She started a camp for children with cancer in Charlotte called Camp Care. She's taught pediatric nursing at University of North Carolina, Charlotte. And so I grew up in the summers being around kids with cancer mm -hmm. and became a camp counselor there. And it used to be back in the day that treatment for cancer wasn't always as, as good as it, it is now. And so I was impacted by seeing kids suffer and die and learning how to see God in that, in the love that was engendered in that camp. So that was incredibly formative. And it, it shows in that my brother became a pediatrician and I became a pastor um, out of that experience. So I have one older brother who is a pediatrician in Greenville, South Carolina, and my two parents now um, are retired and they live in Seneca near Clemson. So had a had a really beautiful, good, formative childhood. Went to Furman University for undergrad, which I loved, go Paladins, <laughs> and had lots of great formative experiences there. Did lots of foreign studies, actually, that were uh, really formative. Did lots of mission trips all through my life, both growing up and um, in college. So it made sense to me that my next step after college was to become a missionary. So I went to I went to Honduras as a United Methodist volunteer in mission at the age of 22 
just turned 22, uh, went to live and try and serve there, realized how much I needed to learn, how much I didn't know, um, realized learning to see what America looks like from the perspective of a place like Honduras, um, which was incredibly formative. Um, seeing the shacks around a Levi's plant, for example, and what it looked like to make cheap clothing for Americans, what it looked like to make coffee. So that was hugely formative, incredibly challenging experience. And it was really there that it clarified my calling into ministry. So I applied to seminary from Honduras which wasn't the easiest thing to do, but I got it done. I wound up going to Duke Divinity and loved my formation there. I was so grateful for that place and what it taught me about loving the church. And also did one year of my MDiv in Germany, which came to help me when I went on to do doctoral studies because I had the German down pat, which was great. Then I went into service in the church. So I had that shaping of being a pastor. So served as a pastor in many different churches, urban, suburban, town and country kinds of churches. So I was, I started in the ministry in 2002, was ordained in 2005 and um, have been serving ever since. So it's a lot of years of service in the church, which each church has its own story. um, And I'm grateful for all of them. They taught me a lot about what it means to be in ministry, each church in its own way. But in and through all of that, I always had a call of teaching and was able to go back, do doctoral work at a place that I loved at Duke and um, was formed and shaped there, continued to do ministry. And I should also say too, that I became a yoga teacher. So I learned and taught yoga while I was at Duke as well and continue to practice yoga a lot. I also was deeply involved in spiritual formation. So I did the Academy of Spiritual Formation, which is the upper room two-year program. I started with a spiritual director myself when I was right out of um, seminary. So um, I've had spiritual directors now for over 16 years and then eventually felt led to go into training myself. So it is spiritual direction training at Shalane Institute, which is based in Maryland. And just really loved this practice of spiritual direction, both for me as a directee, which is the person receiving, which I started way back in 2002 with my first director, and then now being able to offer direction. And Shalane also taught me about group spiritual direction. So it was there that I learned this practice and loved it and knew it connected deeply to my heart and to my Methodist story, which we'll get into later. And I loved the way it fostered a sense of connection with God and others. So at any rate, I'm so grateful to be able to live into that gift of teaching now at Lutheran Theological Southern Seminary, where we teach a lot of the Methodists in South Carolina. We're the approved seminary for South Carolina for United Methodist students. So it's great to get to shape and form students out of my own formation and ministry and in the academy. So it's a it's a wonderful fit for me. And I just think so much of um, LTSS as we call it, Southern if you're Lutheran, Lutheran if you're Methodist is how it's named. But I think we're we're a little light on the hill there in North on North Maine in Columbia. Um, and it's great to be able to teach in that place. I also have I have a dog named Cooper who's a golden doodle. So if you hear him, He's just saying hi in the midst of this podcast. (laughs) And I have a son who is also doing um, school today at at home. So we'll hope for limited interruptions. (laughs) Well, that is, I'm sure, quite the adventure. I know our dog has also tended to interrupt the podcast. So uh, it's, it's nice to worry about somebody else's dog as well. Thank you so much for your story. So I I do want to get into our topic today, which is group spiritual direction. And I'd like to just kind of start out by asking, what is that? (laughs) Right. So I'm actually going to go to the the part that says spiritual direction, because I think it helps people to unpack what is spiritual direction and then put on the group to it. So spiritual direction is really a practice of listening to the presence of God in a person's life. It's really 
it's really holy listening is what Margaret Gunther in her book, Holy Listening, calls it. So it's holy listening to how God's at work in someone else's life. Um, and it's really tuning into the frequency of love at work in someone's life and supporting them as they discern the whispers of the Holy Spirit in their life. I think it can be unfamiliar for Protestants, the word spiritual direction, um, and it can sound directive, right? Like, oh, I'm not sure I want someone directing me. But it's really the sense of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit being the guide. And we tune in and listen to how the Spirit is directing us. So it's not um, co compulsory in the sense of like director. It's, um, it's really a gentle listening in to the whispers of the Holy Spirit in someone's life. And in our tradition of Christianity, there's a long history of spiritual direction. So of course we have it in scripture where in the Old Testament, you have stories like Samuel and Eli of uh, learning to listen to the Spirit, or of in the New Testament, Jesus was a spiritual director for his disciples, where he really listened to how God was at work with questions like, who do you say that I am? That's a spiritual direction question. And we have other examples like Philip with the Ethiopian, where he was really helping to unfold the scripture at work in his life. And so from there then, the church continued this practice of listening to how God was at work in people's lives. And it was really nurtured and sustained within monastic life, within the monasteries, where an abbot would help to listen to the monks. So this tradition could be seen to be more ensconced within the Catholic tradition. And then with the Reformation, sadly, we lost monasticism and its practices, including spiritual direction. So it's really only been recently since Vatican II in the 1960s that spiritual direction has been reclaimed by Protestants as, as a practice that we do. Traditionally, spiritual direction is done with a spiritual director. So this is someone who has usually some training, some deep wisdom, um, someone who can listen well to discern the spirit there and they're kind and they're good and they they desire the best in you and so spiritual direction typically has looked like one-on-one -on -one with a directee and a director and the the director helps to listen to how god is at work in that person's life so that's in a nutshell, spiritual direction, um, as it's been traditionally practiced. And then I'm thinking you might want me to move to then, well, what is group spiritual direction? If that's spiritual direction. Yeah. So group spiritual direction then is taking this practice of holy listening and expanding from two people with the Holy Spirit. So there's always this, this dance of at least three, God, the directee, and the director, and expanding out that circle. So it's a circle of sacred, li sacred listening where people gather to provide and receive spiritual direction from each other. And typically the circle includes about four people, five people. So it's not huge um, in most ways of practicing group spiritual direction. And you can have a facilitator in the group. So this is someone who maybe has a little more training, maybe has a deeper sense of how to listen well and helps to support the group, helps to keep time as well. Um, but the beautiful thing about group spiritual direction is that each person serves as a spiritual director for everyone else and everyone gets their turn to be directed. So you receive this wealth from the community of discernment, of hearing and listening how God's at work in each other's lives. And often it can be someone else's life that actually gives you insight into your own. Um, and the beautiful gift of it is that 
we can really hear and learn through others' experiences in ways that you don't necessarily get in one-on-one -on -one direction because the focus is on the directee. So in, in group spiritual direction, we really hear how God is being present to everyone in a beautiful way. This sounds so amazing. Um, who is spiritual direction for? Is it for um, anyone? Is it lay people, clergy? Who benefits from spiritual direction? Well, I would say any human being who's alive benefits from spiritual direction. <laughs> so it's very egalitarian. So just to say, you know, spiritual direction is not for like the spiritual elites, you know, the people who have seminary degrees. It's for everyone. It's for people with seminary degrees too, for sure. And for clergy benefit tremendously from spiritual direction. And you're seeing more and more boards of ordination recommending for people to get spiritual directors. So it's a huge gift for clergy, but it's certainly open for laity. And it's, it's such a huge gift because it helps us to hear and discern how is God at work in my life? How is God leading me? So it's for anyone who wants to know how to live well, who wants to live with purpose, who wants to live a life worth living. And most people fall into that category, right? Uh, we want to have a sense that we're living into who we're created to be. And that's what spiritual direction does. It guides us into our fullest, truest self. And then we're supported by a director or by the group to have the courage to live into that, to who we're called to be. So what if my theology or understanding of God is not distinctly Christian? Now, hear me, Board of Ordained Ministry, I'm not speaking for Sarah. Sarah is very Orthodox Methodist. <laughs> but um, for, and she's ordained. But I have several friends um, outside of, or that participate in church, but, you know, have sort of, you know, very curious spiritual minds. They're that, on the boundaries. Yeah. They are, or they're, they're uh, they believe in Christianity and in Christ, but also find meaning in other spiritual practices. Um, is spiritual direction just for distinctly Christian folks? Or uh, does that question make sense? <laughs> hmm. Yes, absolutely. So I do. I did want to root that for Christians, there is a deep tradition and practice of spiritual direction. So it's not something like, woohoo, what is that? So for Christians to know that spiritual direction is deeply rooted in Christian history and practice. At the same time, spiritual direction has this wonderful quality of ecumenism. And the overarching body of spiritual direction kind of in the world is um, Spiritual Direction International or SDI. And Spiritual Direction International is ecumenical and interreligious. So you'll find on their website, people from all different religious traditions represented there. And the current leader of Spiritual Direction International, I believe is Buddhist. So not from Christian faith. And I have done a workshop with Spiritual Direction International with a Jewish rabbi that was absolutely amazing. So you can find Spiritual Direction within any religious tradition because it's really a practice of listening to how the divine is at work in someone's life. And so if you're Jewish, then you're listening to how is El Shaddai or El Elyon or Yahweh at work in this person's life. If you're Christian, you're listening to how is God three in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit at work in someone's life. If you're Hindu, you might be listening to how is Shiva Shakti at work in someone's life. So it can be rooted in each tradition oriented to how each tradition understands God in very distinctive ways, and then also oriented to then what are the practices that come out of that tradition. So it's not uncommon in spiritual direction that the spiritual director will make a suggestion of a prayer practice for someone to do like, oh, I think, which my spiritual director was always recommending me to do centering prayer. And it took me a while, I'm like 20 minutes sitting in silence. Mm. 
I'm not sure I can do it. It took me like 10 years to kind of get into that groove. Um, so, you know, if, if you're not there, it's okay. The spirit takes its time. Um, but anyway, so she would recommend for me to do centering prayer, which is rooted in a Christian monastic practice. But if you're, if you're Hindu, it might be that you wanted to do a practice in Ayurvedic medicine based on your own religious tradition. So it's very much can be interreligious. And what's beautiful about it in this 21st century is even more than being specific within traditions, what we have so much of are the spiritual but not religious, right? They're now in the majority, the folks who are out there who are not affiliated with any religion. But as St. Augustine said, you know, have a longing heart have a heart that's longing for some meaning, for for something of God. There's a divine spark there, but they don't know who lit it and how to keep it burning. And that's what spiritual direction does, is it can tap into people who are seeking, people who are searching, people who are hurting, people who feel excluded. It gives a space where people feel welcome to explore their relationship with God, whatever that looks like. And a good director is going to really listen to that and be tuned into how is the spirit at work in this person's life. So it's ecumenical, it can be interreligious, and it also can be profoundly healing for people who feel they're outside, on the margins, not welcome. Um, So in that way, it can be an incredible practice of evangelism, bringing people into the faith who who otherwise have felt hurt or rejected or uninterested. And there was a recent New York Times article on spiritual direction that came out in um, January, actually. So it was New York Times, and it was broad across all religious categories and was demonstrating how hungry people are, especially in this time of pandemic for something deeper. You know, when you've gone through a time of suffering, you're open to knowing the spirit more and that spiritual direction can step into that place and help people to discern, what do I do now that I've lived through this pandemic? Yeah, that's really wonderful. I do have to ask, you you said that in, in the history of it, typically spiritual direction has been centered in the Catholic tradition and especially not not really until Vatican II did it kind of emerge, reemerge into the Protestant consciousness. Uh, but, you know, I, I can't help but wonder if, if it shows up within certain American religious traditions that are, are Protestant in nature, like Quakers or Methodists, for example, because it seems like a lot of what you're describing does look a little bit like some of the early practices in the Methodist tradition. Yeah, I mean, it, it really does kind of sound like a band meeting in a way. At least the group part does. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so can I just go there now? Can I just, yeah. all right. Yes, yes. So this is actually the argument of a book that I'm working on right now <laughs> on group spiritual direction, where I argue that the early forms of Methodist practices of gathering like bands and class meetings are deeply rooted to the Christian practice and tradition of spiritual direction. They just weren't named as such, um, in part because spiritual direction had such a strongly kind of Catholic undertone. But these, these gatherings were places where people were listening together to how God's at work in each other's lives. Um, And certainly there are resonances of this within Protestantism. As John mentioned, with the Quakers, they have a communal practice of the Clearness Committee, which is where one person brings a, a problem or an area of discernment and together the group listens to how God's at work in that person's life. It's a form of group spiritual direction where one person is receiving the direction and the rest of the group is helping to support them. So that's that's an example within Quakerism. Within Methodism, one can see the formation of the groups within Anglicanism that impacted John Wesley and Charles Wesley. They were formed within 
um, Anglican small group practices of the Society for the Promotion of Christian Knowledge that were around that their dad, Samuel, helped to start one in his parish as they were growing up. And so this, this was basically a small group that helped to support people's spiritual lives. They also did a lot more. They did a lot of mission in the community. But it was really a gathering to help support one another. And John and Charles Wesley took that model, which helped them to shape what they then did in Oxford when they created their their holy club or however you want to call it, where they gathered together for prayer and for mutual support. What they were doing was really group spiritual direction. It just wasn't named as such. And in that practice, they were trying to hear how is God at work on our lives? What spiritual practices are we called to do out of this? We called to read scripture, to pray, to fast regularly. Of course, John Wesley would have been fasting on today, on Holy Friday, Good Friday, as an expression of um, his Christian disciplines. So a lot of the disciplines then were supported by that practice of, of the band meeting, basically their first band meeting. Um, and Wesley was also deeply influenced as he left Oxford and had his not so successful venture to Georgia, which reminds us when we ourselves don't have successful ventures in um, mission and ministry that John Wesley also struggled and we can take heart in that as we learn together. But anyway, when he went to Georgia, course when he was there he was exposed to the Moravians which is another expression of um, Protestant piety that used group spiritual direction and they they called them bands and um, Count von Zinzendorf in Germany helped to really establish this practice of having small groups for group spiritual direction of listening to each other and John Wesley and Charles Wesley were exposed to that in Georgia and were really shaped by that practice and the Wesleys then imported that when the Methodist movement began when they came back from their mission to England but they found that the bands were kind of selective and not everybody wanted to be in that super intense small group. It was like a, a lot, you know, you had to be like super dedicated. And what they discovered was that people still were really wanting Christian community, maybe not as intense as the band. And so though initially the class meeting began to collect funds for a building campaign, imagine that. Never happened before. Never, never. happens. Um, but the, the class meeting evolved to become this place where the class leader helped to support and listen to the class meetings members every week they were meeting together they were praying they were listening and holding each other accountable to how the spirit was at work there was of course a lot of hymn singing that was happening too so it was it was more than just group spiritual direction but certainly that was happening and people loved it the class meetings grew because they had a place where they felt heard where they felt they belonged, where they felt they mattered, and where they got a sense of how they were called to be in Christian life. And so the class meetings kept growing and growing, and it really gave birth to the Methodist movement. So one uh, author, Paul Jones, of a book on spiritual direction, who was Methodist and then became a Trappist monk, um, offers that really the genius behind the Methodist movement, it's a polity shaped by group spiritual direction. It just wasn't named as such because that, that language and practice wasn't named and known. But John Wesley served as a spiritual director for the whole Methodist movement. And then the class meeting leaders served as spiritual directors within the class meeting itself. So to see our movement as one really formed by spiritual direction, by people listening to the heartbeat of God in their lives. Yeah, that gets to the heart of who we are as Methodists. I, I think that I think that's a really excellent like argument for kind of the foundations of Methodism. And I think that's we've recently been doing episodes on different conferences and things like that that are a typical part of Methodist polity. And that's what's missing from all of them. 
and it's just a hot mess of garbage <laughs> that goes on because there's just no like spiritual foundation in it. Tell us how you really feel, Brian. <laughs> yeah, this is. Well, I mean, I'm, I'm really tired this. of being read Leviticus at annual conference. I don't know about you. Um, without any kind of spiritual like tone to it, it's more just derogatory reading of Leviticus. But what do you do at annual conference? Yeah, what's going I on know. in Virginia? <laughs> Well, it's not happening anymore, but I can remember being younger and that happening at least once a conference. Like, but it really, I mean, beyond kind of like in early America and and kind of early within Methodism in Great Britain, like there's clearly some anti-Catholic sen- sentiment like that just exists culturally. Uh, I mean, it still might exist in some of those places and in different ways and shapes not speaking about any individual states that any of us live in but i think that we're part of the issues we've been discerning over the last several weeks have really been rooted in we've kind of lost that identity as methodists and that's been harmful both to the global church and to the local church i'm really excited to hear about our roots in spiritual direction, especially in the listening aspect, because very much so it shapes how we do mission as well. You know, I I was taught early on, you know, here's this wonderful card, right? It gives them all the information that they need. Uh, This little Romans road, there's like a little ditch and a cross in it. Um, And all you need is Jesus and give them this card and you'll save a soul or something along that line. And really the intentional listening um, and the practice of that as spiritual direction, I find is always the best way to connect with people. Just allowing people to talk and share their stories. And and as you said, being heard and allow the Holy Spirit to kind of pique your attention to say, this is where I want you to to explore a little bit or play a little bit or or whatever else has really shaped my understanding as as one who loves to work more so in the mission field. So starting my my position at the new church soon, you know, that's half of what I'm going to be doing out in the community. So thinking about how to incorporate those spiritual directive practices to help equip others in the field, I think would radically shape how we do mission as well. My question would be, you know, we could see it definitely in the church um, and in other spiritual uh, disciplines, but do we see that in sort of a non-church sense? I'm just thinking of like different bridges in art and in movies and that sort of like mutual listening is also present. Yeah, this kind of listening is certainly not the, the ownership of the, <laughs> the church, so it can be. excuse me, it can be out in the, it can be out in the community uh, for sure. And what I love about the early class meetings is because of that practice of group spiritual direction that they did together, they were able to discern how they were to be in mission together. So they were able to have a sense of unity around what they were called to do. And of course, a lot of the early Methodists came from all different socioeconomic backgrounds. So a lot of the class meetings, resources would go to support the ones who didn't have enough resources. So it would go to feed and clothe the other members of the class meeting who didn't have enough. So mission wasn't on the outside, it was (laughs) with and for each other. But they also would do visitation of sick, of prisoners, and each class meeting because of that sense of unity and consensus that's developed out of this practice, could more clearly see how are we called to be in mission? How is God leading us? So instead of this kind of frenetic, we got to go out and do stuff for other people, which is a particular problem within the white church and leads to kind of white savior mentality. Instead of that, you can kind of clearly discern then What is God, who is God calling us to do and to be with a sense of unity and clarity, which might mean, for example, for white people, that they need to look into zoning orders that are causing causing gentrification in their community and pushing African-Americans out, for example. It might be something that might be surprising that comes up through this practice of prayer and discernment that might not otherwise occur. Um, If you're like, oh, we got to go out and 
serve. So the class meeting always had bridges to the community in the same way I think group spiritual direction um, when practiced well leads to mission in the community. And it, it can be practiced out in the community. So it can also be practiced in Zoom. It can be practiced online. So it's such a flexible practice that allows it to be missional and outside the walls of the church. I hope I'm kind of getting at what you were asking, Garrett. I'm, yes, I'm not definitely. sure if I am. <laughs> so can you take us through what a typical meeting would look like? Like what would a typical group spiritual direction session go through? What are the parts? What are the essential emphases? Yes. So let's say you have a group gathering with about four to five people. So first there's the gathering, wherever that gathering takes place which again, it doesn't need to be inside the walls of the church. And class meetings, historically in Methodism in its early years, they, they didn't have a church. They met in people's homes. There's documentation that they met in like a coal bin where coal was stored. <laughs> they met anywhere they could find a space. And in the same way, group spiritual direction can meet anywhere. It can meet in people's homes. So in that way, it kind of falls more into the model of like a house church. They can meet out in a, you know, in a quiet corner of a restaurant or coffee shop. So you decide where you're going to gather. And the class meeting would say you gather in the neighborhood, whatever that looks like. And as you gather, then you're intentional about setting this as a holy and, and, and sacred space. So lighting a candle, is a great thing to do. And then taking some time for centering in silence. So usually most groups spiritual direction would begin with a time of silence, maybe just one minute for those who are just beginning, maybe five minutes for those who have more practice underneath them. It may be the case that the facilitator or whomever is the, the leader for, for that day might offer a scripture to help to center the group, might read a scripture verse, might read a poem, you know, might have an offering of an image and give that as a space for people to reflect upon. I've used all kinds of things for that centering time to help people to get into the space. So I've used, most recently, I used um, a poem by Howard Thurman. So it can help to have something to help people to center. And after reading that, you have the silence. And then you move into the first person who shares. And you could call this person a storyteller or a presenter or a directee. Different people use different language. But I'm going to go with storyteller. So the first storyteller shares, and depending on the time structure, which you decide in advance, the storyteller could have two minutes, three minutes, four minutes, five minutes, depending on your time structure, to share the story of their life with God, which gets to the question that was asked in, in class meetings, which was, how is it with your soul? Or how is your life with God? Or how is God at work in your life? And this person has five, four, three minutes just to respond to that question without any interruption, no one making any comment, just being heard for those five minutes. If they don't take all that time, the group just goes back into silence. And it may be that the facilitator would say, is there anything else that's rising up that you'd like to share with us about your life with God? Maybe something does, maybe something doesn't, but you try to hold that time fully for that person. Then the group goes into a time of silent listening for how God is at work in this person's life. And again, depending on the time structure, that time of silence could be three minutes, it could be two minutes, it should at least be one minute to give people in the group time to listen. And um, questions that can help, especially for beginners, would be, what is God's prayer for this person? So the group is really listening for what is God praying in this person's life? And then a response to that would be, what do you want my prayer for this person to be? And is there anything you want me to say to this person on your behalf? And so the group is really listening in the silence for what God might say. And sometimes you don't know. You're listening in the silence and you think, 
is this what you want me to say, God? I'm not sure. But you just, you hold on to whatever you get in that time of silence, trusting that God will work through it. And then there's a time of response. So you move out of the silence. And again, depending on the time structure, it could be up to 10 minutes of response. It could be five minutes. It could be three minutes if you're um, trying to do it in an hour, for example. So in this time of response, this is where the group offers to the storyteller their questions, their noticings, their wonderings. And it helps for the group particularly if it's a beginning group, to give them the frame of offer your responses in I noticed, I wondered, I appreciated. So that keeps you away from trying to give this person advice, trying to fix them, trying to correct them, trying to change them. And instead, it gives them what might actually be coming from the spirit. I noticed, I wondered, I appreciated, or I wonder what your prayer in this might be. And the group offers these questions, these noticings to the storyteller. And depending on how you've structured it, you could do a response time in which just the group is offering them and the storyteller is just receiving them without responding. So then they're given time just to sit and reflect, or it could be that the storyteller engages. Again, depending on how you structure it, there's different models. After the response time, then there's a time of silent prayer for the directee or the storyteller. So the group sits in silence and prays over the person who's just presented. And then out of that silence, you shift to the next storyteller, who then goes through that pattern of sharing, silence, and response. And you do that for each person in the group until everyone has been heard and everyone has shared and everyone's responded. So it's this beautiful practice of mutuality. At the end of the whole practice, when everyone has shared in group spiritual direction, you take some time and it could be five minutes, it could be 10 minutes to reflect on your practice together and how you did. So it's a check-in. Did we, did we hold prayerfulness? Did we stay with the sense of the spirit? Was there a time in which maybe we moved toward correcting or towards judging or toward giving our own story? That can often happen. Like, oh, I know when that happened to me, which you want to stay away from in spiritual direction. You want to stay away from telling your own story when you're listening to someone else's story. So you check in on how things went. And then you have a closing time of prayer. And that could be silent, that could be verbal, that could be a hymn or a song. And you close out your time together. And guaranteed that from the time you begin to the time you end, if you come in feeling stressed, anxious, you've got too much to do, I don't have time for this group spiritual direction today, but I got to do it. At the end, that stress, that worry has dissipated like 100% of the time. And I know because I carry like stress sometimes and a lot of things to do. And I have yet in years of doing group spiritual direction to not feel a sense of the holy, of calm, of peace, of centering at the end. You're just like, what a great gift. Who doesn't want that? Right? Uh, so that's a basic sense of this, the group process. I, I just need to do that. <laughs> like just me. Um, let alone the fact that I already know I need to teach lay people how to do that. That sounds wonderful. So I have, I actually have two questions to follow up on the method question. One is it, it sounds like this is a democratizable process. It sounds like with a little bit of training, just about anybody could do it. And, and especially if you're in the habit of practicing and, and in a mentoring relationship or a mentee relationship where you're learning kind of as you go, but also, what are the essential safeguards that need to be in place in order to prevent this kind of practice from becoming something unhealthy or unholy? Yes. Yeah, so to your first point, John, the de democratizing principle, yes. Like, all humans can do this work. Um, so, and I would, I would offer, maybe not everyone wants this, you know, I acknowledge there's, you know, people are in different places, but I think there is a deep hunger 
for this kind of profound connection with God and with other people. Um, I think we're, and coming out of the pandemic, I think we're profoundly hungry for it. So yes, everyone can practice this. And yes, I think with the main thing in terms of training would be learning how to listen like learning how to listen so that you hear the Holy Spirit instead of your own stuff, which is a practice that gets better as you do it. Um, and certainly spiritual direction training programs do that. My own, which I direct, we help to form people in ways of holy listening. Um, in our, It's a two-year non-degree program open to lay and clergy at Lutheran Theological Southern Seminary. So I just had to put that plug in there for anyone who might be interested in learning the practice of spiritual direction. So you can certainly be formed in this and you can you can really become a, a master at this practice of listening to the heart of God, right? Which most clergy aren't taught to do in seminary. <laughs> but then you do need some ground rules. You need some guidelines and some boundaries because like anything that involves going deeply to the heart, things can go off the rails. So every group spiritual direction needs to have a covenant or ground rules or a rule of life, whatever you want to call it, but every group needs that. And there are kind of three primary rules that I like to uphold. And I actually pull those from Diane Millis. So this is not me. She has a book called Recreating a Life. And it's learning how to tell our most life-giving story. And I have found her ground rules to be the most helpful. So I'm taking these. So the first one is to listen well. So that's the first rule. And that means to listen in a non-judgmental way, to listen without wanting to analyze, fix, correct, change, or advise someone, and to um, encourage my own capacity to listen within. So to listen well. Number two is to speak the truth. So that means to speak the truth for myself, to use I language, I feel, I think, I hurt. So to use that language as I offer my experience, I wonder about, I felt. Um, so to speak to the truth of my heart and to also feel free to pass if I don't feel like sharing. So to give that space. And then the third rule is to be attentive. So that means to observe the time structure that's set up for the group spiritual direction. What enables group's direction to, to go so well is that everyone agrees upon a time structure and everyone gets a turn and everyone gets the same amount of time. And if people start abusing that time structure, inevitably, someone's going to be like, well, I only got two minutes and so-and-so got seven. Even if so-and-so who got seven is like going through a major life crisis, it still devalues the other person um, to not have the same amount of time. So no matter what people are going through, you hold the time structure because you trust that the spirit's going to work through the whole time not just for the person who's having the crisis. Might be the person who's having the crisis is really supported by someone else's time of storytelling. So you hold to that time structure and that's part of being attentive. You limit your own storytelling to fit within that time allotted. And I actually find, let's say you say for your group, the storyteller is gonna have three minutes to share their life with God. What that does is it really helps people to hone in on what's most important. So if you know you only have three minutes, you're not going to start usually with superficiality. You're going to go right to the heart, right? Like my heart is really grieving right now over all the losses of this pandemic. This is what this loss looks like for me with God. Boom. Like with three minutes, people go right in. So that's what the time structure does. You also are to hold double confidentiality within being attentive. So that means not only being confidential within the group, so what you say in the group doesn't go outside, but it also means you don't lift up what someone else shared and check in with them unless they do that. So if 
Sarah, for example, shared something in a group spiritual direction and I see her out in the grocery store later that week. I don't then go, oh, Sarah, you know, how is that? like heartbreaking thing that's going on in your life going, right? It may be that she really doesn't want to talk about that right now. She's trying to pick out her apples. Um, so you, you practice double confidentiality, meaning you don't bring up what someone shared outside of that space unless they specifically come to you and say, you know, I'd really like to process more with you what I shared in that time. So those three ground rules really help listening well, speaking truth, and being attentive. And I should also say that part of being attentive means shutting off all devices. So in any group spiritual direction, unless like someone's in it, has someone in a dire emergency and you need to have the phone on, you really have a practice of all phones are off, they're put away, they're not even visible um, because that is distracting. Yeah, so listen well, speak truth, be attentive those ground rules or covenant or guidelines, they can help. And I think limiting it to three helps because, you know, when you've been a part of a group that's had like this huge long covenant and then nobody really remembers anything in it because there's 10 things, you're like, oh, what were we supposed to do? Okay. But if you can keep it short to two or three, people will do a better job of really adhering to it. And then you can check in in the check-in time after the group is done and say, how did we listen? How did we speak truth? And how did we um, practice being attentive? My final question is, if somebody is interested in this, thank you for the plug for the LTSS program, but uh, how do you find a, a spiritual uh, guidance group? Yes. A spiritual director. Right. Right. So Spiritual Direction International has SDI International dot org, I think, has a website and part of the website is find a director. So you can click on your area in the world and you can find a director. The beautiful thing that has happened with, I mean, it's not, the pandemic is not beautiful, but what has happened is that spiritual direction is happening by video conferencing call all over the place. So you could have a spiritual director. My own spiritual director actually is three states away um, and we use Zoom to do spiritual direction. So it kind of expands who might be a good spiritual director for you. But if you really are a person who does better with someone in person, then you can look on Spiritual Direction International and they'll have people who have gone through generally some form of Spiritual Direction training that are on that list. I maintain a list of our graduates from our Spiritual Direction program who are open to taking in directees um, to, to do that. I also recommend people to look for your closest retreat center or monastery in your community or area and usually they're going to be spiritual directors that are connected to that. So um, when I first started um, in ministry in my very first appointment, there was actually a Franciscan renewal center um, not very far away. And I called them and said, can you give me a list of like three potential good spiritual directors? And it's usually advised to meet with a couple or three people and discern who do I feel led to and for the spiritual director too to discern if, if this is um, spirit led to be together. With groups, it's a little bit harder because there's no like website <laughs> for group spiritual direction. What, um, what I hope to do with my little book offering whenever it comes out is to have in there really clear guidance on the practice of group spiritual direction for United Methodists out of our practice and tradition through the class meeting so that people will feel empowered to start a group on their own um, and, and do this in their own context. Well, that's exciting. We look forward to that book coming out and adding it to our bookstore and having it on our bookshelf as well. So each week we end our time together by just kind of checking in and seeing what's bringing everybody joy and life or at the very least what's getting you through what could be a very long work week, Brian. So <laughs> how is everybody doing? Like, like what is bringing you joy and life this week? Um, I would say the flowers and allergy medicine <laughs> as, as a double 
grateful moment, a double thing of gratitude. I can't even speak straight. It's so, Holy Week is so long. <laughs> Are the flowers and allergy me- medicine relating related in some way? Are they bringing you joy together, or yes. are they bringing you joy somewhat at cross purposes? Yes, our azaleas have exploded, and so has my nose. <laughs> so uh, for me, uh, Easter is like my favorite day of the year, and it's also going to be the first time in about three months that my congregation is going to be in person. And so I'm really looking forward to that. And that and that's really getting me through this week. And I'm also uh, recently kind of been assigned a task on our district to focus on how we can care for clergy better. And that's been a great conversation to be a part of. So actually, I'm probably going to recommend this as a as a means for uh, clergy to better care for themselves. Yeah, I think for me, I'll have to follow up after Sarah. I'm originally from New Jersey, so spring was always a big deal and like things sprout up and all of the perennials. And you don't, uh, I hadn't got that in several years in Florida. Everything was just green or various types of green and brown or dangerous alligator colored. Um, But uh, recently in driving around Durham and exploring the new place. Seeing all the daffodils has brought like a childish amount of joy to my life. Like even seeing the ones that were like neatly placed down like sidewalks and stuff. So for no other reason than that, uh, just the beauty of creation (laughs) recently. I resonate with y'all. It's actually been my Lenten, my Lenten practice was to seek joy and creation and to be intentional every day about looking for beauty. Um, And that's really helped me pay attention more in my neighborhood when I walk the dog. Like, oh, there's a little fat robin getting some, like, I'm glad our neighborhood nourishes birds well. Um, So I've noticed things more. And yes, um, the beauty of spring, like the dogwoods here are just full out blossoming which there's a connection of a dogwood to the to the cross and so it's just so beautiful to see all the blooms I really resonate with that I think this week what has been bringing me joy is that I have been felt led to do this prayer practice that's called loving kindness and it's a prayer it's met it's called meta and it's a way of praying for yourself for a loved one and for a difficult one where you just um, offer prayer. May I be well, may I be safe, may I be free from harm, may I um, be at ease, may I be filled with loving kindness. And you direct that to yourself, then you direct that to someone you love who might be suffering, and then you direct it to someone who's difficult in your life. And I felt led to do that beautiful little prayer this Holy Week because I was just not ready for the energy of Holy Week. (laughs) You know, it's hard to go to dark Gethsemane when we never really left it last year. So I felt like I wanted to practice loving kindness. And it's really helped me to see in the Holy Week texts that there's so much love. You know, one can focus on the hardnesses of Holy Week, but there's so much love of Jesus all the way through. Like we're for yesterday, for Monday, Thursday, where the John text said, and Jesus loved them to the end. Like that was Jesus's telos, loving to the end. Um, and so just seeing that, it's been a gift in my Holy Week. And so every class I've taught this week, I've led them in the loving kindness. And one of the things that I think I can do as a teacher is just open up the door into my own prayer life and invite students in and say, come sit a little while, get comfortable. We're going to pray loving kindness. (laughs) And that's been a beautiful gift for me um, this week is to do that every day. I, I can say I know during the time that I spent at LTSS, your spirituality and the way you wove prayer practices into your classes was always appreciated on my end. Um, if only to be forced to sit quietly for five minutes, because it just that was a definitely a time where we it was constant movement 
always on the move, always going to the next thing. And so having somebody else to say, go sit quietly for a minute was just a, a really wonderful gift. I, I don't have anything particularly deep <laughs> to say, except that I'm really enjoying my dog this week. She has been energetic and kind of spastic and up and moving and going and just up all night, which shouldn't be something that I appreciate, but uh, that has come with a lot of affection and energy. And so, you know, I've just been enjoying spending time with her. So Dr. Dobson, where can people find you if they want to look up you and your work? Well, I am on Facebook and on Instagram, so you can find me there if you like. I do need at some point in my life to create a website, and I just haven't I haven't gotten there yet. Um, we will have a faculty page on the Lutheran Theological Southern Seminary um, website as well. And there is also a website for the Spiritual Direction Certification Program. Um, and the Spiritual Direction Certification Program also has a Facebook page. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. This has been just a really great episode, and we would love to have you on again sometime in the future. Well, thank you so much for having me, and I offer to all of you this prayer of loving kindness. May you be well. May you be at ease. May you be at peace. And may you be filled with loving kindness. Amen. Amen. Hey guys, this is John. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Logos-ish. This week's music was by Audionautics.com. If you have any thoughts or questions you'd like to share with us and you'd like us to share on the podcast, or if you have some ideas for guests or topics for us to cover, email us at logosishpod at gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, etc. Please like, subscribe, and review wherever you downloaded this podcast. That really does help us to get the word out about all the stuff that we are doing. And we love good feedback as well. You can also find our website at logosish.com. Have a wonderful week.